Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We've so richly done that tonight. And now as we give attention to our lesson for tonight, Lessons from the Crucifixion, Part 1. That'll be our study of our lesson tonight. And if you may, may notice, that's Part 1. And it's going to be my intent over the next eight to nine lessons, as I have it planned out now, to uh, study in detail those events that surround the crucifixion, to learn about its entirety, and how we can apply, can apply those lessons to our lives as Christians. And as we come to this slide of introduction, tonight we will focus our lesson and our study upon the Lord's Supper and the praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord's Supper quite mo mostly is noted in the, as being the centerpiece in the New Testament, one of the most widely noted deaths of the greatest human being that ever lived. But sadly, some in our world through the centuries have denied it. Some don't give it the credit it deserves. There are notable historians and maybe even college professors in history that will openly tell a classroom full of students that record records and recordings, early recordings of the crucifixion didn't happen for 200 years after it, after it occurred. And we all know there's no truth to that at all because in Acts chapter 2 when the very first gospel sermon was delivered, Peter reflected on that for those individuals of his time. But the life of Jesus, as we see highlighted throughout the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in those gospel accounts, is truly a remarkable life. He, he lived a perfect life, a sinless life. He came to do the will of the Father and to be our teacher. And we can also appreciate those prophecies as we see in a wide variety of numbers throughout the, New, uh, the, throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 15, one of the very first recordings we have of that, of, the, of that prophecy, right after, shortly after the sin in the Garden of Eden, God said, And I will put intimate between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise its heel. So we then see the description of what Jesus was going to do. He was going to crush the power of Satan through death. In Isaiah chapter 7, 14, chapter 7 verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you, a, give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephraim, through thou be little among the thousands of Judea. Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from, from old, from everlasting. We then learn of that lineage through the tribe of Judah. Next, we can appreciate Jesus being God in the flesh, the second member of the Godhead. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus speaking there says, I and my Father are one. 
also in John chapter 17, verse 21, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be one in us. That prayer right before his death, and him, and when Jesus uttered that to his Father. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which, which being interpreted, interpreted is God with us. We then notice that he being perfect in every way, being God in the flesh. Also, he's referred to as the Lamb of God. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist speaking here, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Other remarkable things that we can learn from his life, we can appreciate his miracles. In John chapter 9, verses 1 1 through 12, we're given that beautiful description of Jesus healing the blind man. Also in Matthew chapter 14, verses 16 through 21, he fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fishes. We can also learn a great deal from the many parables that Jesus spoke and his teachings. Matthew chapter 13 being the most notable ones. And how, and we must certainly never forget that kingdom in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, that he promised to build and that he did build and that he died for and how you and I can be a part of that promise. And in towards the end of his life, right before the, week, the crucifixion week, as he was journeying towards Jerusalem, Brother Joe read for us Matthew chapter 17, verse, uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to, to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. And with that in mind, we'll come to the First description of our lesson and the, and the point of the Lord's Supper tonight. If you would, let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. That's where we'll spend the majority of our time tonight. I also have noted up here for you the other gospel accounts of the Lord's Supper, also in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25, and Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 22. But if you'd like to follow along, I'll be reading from Matthew's account. And I'll, be, I'll start reading in uh, chapter 26, starting in verse 17 through 29. Now the, first, now the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he, said, and he said, Go unto the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. And I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the the evening, evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, 
that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the, in the dish, and shall the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth, as it is written of him, but woe unto him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? Then said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave, gave it unto them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So we can then appreciate this description of that Passover meal that Jesus and his disciples were about to partake. He gave them order in verse 18, and as they did that, what you may think would be a, a time of, of a feast and, and thanksgiving and celebrated celebration, Jesus says here that one of you is going to betray me. And one can almost imagine the disciples here on this occasion and their reaction to that. Every one of them, it says in verse 22, began to ask, is it I? And then Jesus gives the description in verse 23, he that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. And we all know that Judas Iscariot was the one who betrayed him. And then we see that beautiful description after Jesus notes Judas as the one betraying him. We then see it starting in verses 26 of that wonderful memorial that you and I would call the Lord's Supper. Now after they had eaten, Jesus specified two emblems. First was the bread, the unleavened bread, and the second was the fruit of the vine. And he gave instruction and description of what those two emblems meant. The bread was his body, and the fruit of the vine was his blood. And he says here, drink ye all of it, for this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So we can then appreciate that scene in Acts chapter in Acts chapter 2, if baptism where one contacts the blood of Christ, it was for the remission of sins. And having the, appreciated those emblems, we then uh, notice the importance in verse 29 of Jesus saying, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We then see here highlighted that this is something that the church would be taking a part of this memorial. So when we come to the bottom of this slide, we then can ask ourselves, is it possible to partake of the Lord's Supper in an inappropriate way and in a way that God would not find pleased? As we then turn to the next slide, 
we come to Paul's warning to the Corinth, to the church at Corinth. If you would, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and notice his description. I'll begin reading in chapter, and I'm sorry, verse 17 through 30. Now in this, now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating every one taketh forth taketh before a, a other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, which shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus that same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take ye, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat, th eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Going back to the first part of Paul's statement here, we then see a very strong warning in verse 17. If you can imagine an inspired writer of God telling this congregation that when they come together, it was for the worse. They would probably have been better off to stay home and their error in doing this. And as we, all, as we continue, Paul says here that when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. We then learn a very important point here that the Lord's Supper is not a common meal. And we also appreciate that those two emblems that the Lord established, the, this congregation here was bringing in their, possibly their food from home and food from other places and in just enjoying a meal and incorporating that in with the Lord's Supper. And Paul strongly rebuked them for that. And he dipped back into history when he says, he recalls, recalls the events that Jesus said in verses 24 and 25 about how they were supposed to do this in remembrance of him. And so what lessons can we learn? We learn, we learn that it's not a common meal and the importance of the two emblems for a proper form of our worship as we partake of it. 
In verse 26, we then learn that as we partake of it, we show the Lord's death till he come. And meaning that statement, we will partake of the Lord's Supper in a way that's appropriate until he returns again. We also learn in verses 27 and 28 where it says, Paul says here, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. We then see here that one must examine themselves in partaking of the Lord's Supper. And also in verse 27, we then notice a very interesting word here. It's, it's unworthily. Now notice it does not say unworthy. I suppose there's not an individual that's alive that can be worthy enough to partake of the Lord's Supper. But, uh, to, but per, to partake of it unworthily in a way that's not proper, in a way that's not right. Maybe there's an individual that is living an open life of sin or maybe even a private life of sin and they refuse to repent of it. One can't possibly claim to partake of the Lord's Supper in a rightful way if that one refuses to repent. We also notice in verse 29, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. We then learn that that word dis discern, that means to set apart, to focus on. And we must do this appropriately because if we don't, the text says here, we drinketh, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Again, going back to the first part of this description, it would be better for us not to partake of this. And also as we strive to recognize and distinguish and partaking these emblems, we do what brings into light the Lord's death in its entirety, putting the thoughts of the world aside, putting matters of life, whether that be our jobs or family matters aside, and focusing on what we're supposed to be focusing on. Discerning the Lord's body is very important, my friend, and we have to do that in a way that would be beneficial for us and more importantly, pleasing in God's sight. And Paul ends this discussion in verse 30, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you. And it was probably so that their physical health was okay, but spiritually they were sick in doing this. And you and I can be guilty of this as well if we let it happen. And in that he says, And many sleep. So apparently many, some here in this congregation had died in, do, in 
partaking of the Lord's Supper in an inappropriate way. And when we come to the bottom, bottom of that slide, we then appreciate the authority of observing it only on the first day of the week. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we then see the frequency of partaking this special memorial. And I suppose many in our world religiously struggle with this matter and how often, asking themselves how often can we partake of it. That some partake of it two times a year, once a month, maybe even once in their lifetime. But when we come to Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we read, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, we then appreciate that statement. And we may notice in that context that Paul was leaving the next day. And he continued his speech unto them until midnight. And in that context, he preached to them. But he was on his way, the text says, goes on to say, to Jerusalem. So one could ask themselves, during that period of stay with them, couldn't they have not have gathered on a Wednesday or a Thursday or that Saturday to partake of the Lord's Supper? Would that have been inappropriate? Of course it would. They waited till the first day of the week because we remember that was when our Lord was resurrected. So it would be inappropriate to partake of it on any other day than the first day of the week. And you and I look forward to partaking of that memorial each first day of the week as we come together as the church. As we then turn, this, turn to our next slide, we'll now appreciate the prayer in Gethsemane and ask us very important questions about our prayer lives as Christians. So if you would, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 26. And I'll continue reading where we picked off, where we left off at, starting in verse 30 and, and going through verse 46. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the, she I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, That this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not, den yet I not deny thee. Likewise also said the disciples, then cometh Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane. And he said in his, to his, unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he, looked, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little farther, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. 
And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time, and prayed, saying, O my father, if, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left, he le and he left them, and went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And he cometh, and cometh he to his disciples, and saith unto him, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he at hand that doth betray me. So we then see a very strong description of Jesus' prayer on this occasion, don't we? After the institution of the Lord's Supper, the text says, in ver going back to verse 30, they went out, they sung a hymn, and Jesus gave them the prophecy of what will be their case that night. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, we are told that, that the, sheep, the shepherd would be smitten and the sheep of the flock would be scattered. Jesus then commands them to go and pray. And then he went a and he went he, and he went a little ways and fell. And the text says, starting in verse 38, that he was exceedingly sorrowful. So that didn't, that didn't that then puts us ask us a question. Do you and I as Christians ever pray when we are sorrowful, when we are, are saddened by maybe the loss of a loved one, or maybe we even find ourselves in sin. And when we do pray, do we always ask him in an accordance if it be thy will? Those are two great questions, aren't they? And Jesus answers them here and in his example. And during these events, Jesus, in Luke's account, gives us the description of the Lord being in agony while he was praying. And the text goes on to say so much that he was sweating, but this wasn't just a normal form of sweat. This was, his sweat was his blood, as the description gives us. And you may notice about middle ways of that slide, there is a condition that individuals can suffer from when they're under great, a great amount of stress and turmoil, and it's called hematidrosis, where a person will literally sweat, start sweating blood. And this description here was, in Luke's account, was the description of our Savior. So can you imagine the Son of God under so much stress. And also we notice that an angel in the very next verse in Luke's account came and provided him strength. And we must all also remember that during any of these moments, he could have stopped this. He could have 
called to his father to send him legions of angels, he would have went back to heaven and we would have still been lost in our sins too. And as we come to the bottom of that slide, we then learn another very important point here regarding Jesus and his sweating of blood. Through many, through many years, many have made the statements in trying to figure this out. But it was because of the pain he was going to have to endure. And this is why that he was so sorrowful and he was so moved by the, by the stress and, and the sweating of the blood. But may I say, another strong indication in other verses teach something different than that. It may have been partly that, but the main reason here, as we can see, if we turn to John chapter 1, verse 29, that we noted earlier, when John the Baptist made that statement, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. We must all remember that that was Jesus' ultimate mission, to make that atoning sacrifice for us. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it reads, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he that hath, for he that hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made in the righteousness of God in him. So we then can appreciate that sin is what directed our Savior into being under so a great amount of stress under these moments. He knew he was going to have to bear our sins. And it wasn't for only the sins of the people of that time, and it wasn't for only the sins of the, those that would live even a, a hundred years into the future. It was for every person that would live from then until the end of time, living on any, con any continent, in any where, the sins of one person in a lifetime. We can't even describe and picture in our minds the enormity of how much sin our Savior endured. But we all know he had to do it so that everybody could appreciate salvation, and the church, and being forgiven of those sins. And in Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse, verses 7 and 8, we're, yet, we're then given another description of Jesus under his sorrow. I'll begin reading in ver, chapter uh, 5, starting in verse 7, and verses 7 and 8. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up pr prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So we then see this description of Gethsemane again, given by the Hebrew writer on this occasion. And our Savior being so moved and so distraught, 
sweating of blood, that he, because he knew he was going to have to bear all of our sins. And friend, if we can only imagine what he felt on that day to a sinner that knows the truth, we would all do something about it because he died for us. He took our sins away, and we have to be willing to obey his will in its entirety if we want to wish to go to heaven. He's prepared the way for us, and we have to humble ourselves. As we then come to our next slide, we then learn a couple more lessons about prayer here. In 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 12, we then learn an important truth about prayer. And the statement here that prayer is not a privilege to everyone. Now, our world, religiously, in the realms of religion and denominationalism, would probably be shocked by that truth. But God has not given the privilege of prayer to everyone. Because in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. We then see a two-sided coin here, don't we? One, prayers being for the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. So we may ask, who is the righteous on this occasion? It's his children. It's those that have obeyed his will, those that have obeyed the gospel. But the face of the Lord is against them, that do evil. So anybody that's not obeyed the gospel, that ha is a member of a denomination, or those that are, are in rebellion against God, they ought not expect their prayers to be heard. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, we then see another description of those prayers of the saints, those prayers of the children of God, as described as incense to God on that occasion. So as we then look unto Jesus for our example of prayer, taking it throughout his entire life and even in those events in the Garden of Gethsemane, we then can appreciate in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus, also in First, or Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, he that, saith, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to, to walk, even as he walked. So if we are to live as Jesus and be Christ-like, we must be an individual and Christians of prayer. We have to have prayer as a part of our life. Coming to the next point on that slide, we then can appreciate we have to have conviction in our prayers. We have to know 
to the one whom we're praying. And we have to know that we believe in him and that he, that he will believe that he will answer those prayers if we ask him. And Jesus being the man of prayer that he was, and if he needed prayer here in the Garden of Gethsemane, how much more do we, do we, do we need prayer as we try as strive to live our Christian lives? We all know we live in a world that's evil, that's run by the devil. There's evil and sinfulness all around us. We see it in nearly every days of our lives. We see it on newscasts at the workplace, and may we pray for strength to escape from temptations and for strength to say the right things when we find ourselves in a matter religiously. And as this thought of conviction that we are looking at here, if we turn to James chapter 1, verse, verse 6, knowing that he hears our prayers, we are not just talking to a common person or thing. We are talking to the great being of this universe. And in James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we're given a warning here. It says, If any, man, if any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven without the wind and tossed. Friend, when we, friends, when we pray, we have to be convicted that God hears us. And in Hebrew, to add to that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for that, for that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. As we also can appreciate, when we pray, whether that be here at our public worship services or at home, in private, or leading our families in prayer, we have to ask things that's in accordance to His will. If His will be done, just as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 11, verse 24, it says, Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye, will, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. We also have to have confidence in our prayers and knowing that God will hear us or knowing that God will hear us and answer those prayers if we've asked in accordance to his will. And in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything in, accordan in accordance to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he heareth us, whatsoever we ask, know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. To Christians, we can find great comfort in a verse like that one, can't we? Knowing that when we pray to God, we know that we're not talking to uh, another human being or 
asking favors of a friend, we know that we are talking to the great ruler of this universe. We're talking to our Father, and he's promised to answer our prayers if we're faithful to him. So as we then come to the next point, praying every day. So as Christians, how often do we pray? How often are our prayers supposed to be? If we, as we look at these examples, we have, we have to pray as Christians every day. We're given that description and that very example in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, in the model prayer where Jesus says, Give us this day our daily bread. He gives a description of being thankful daily. He didn't say, Give us this day our weekly bread or our yearly bread. He said, Our daily bread. He was thankful for, his, for the things that the Heavenly Father provided for him and them every day. It would be wise for us to pray for to have prayer before the start of the day. Maybe we know that the day is going to be challenging. Maybe we could be like Jesus in Mark chapter 1 verse 35 when he arose a great while before day, he went out the text says to a private place and prayed. That would be wise for us to do because that would give us the strength, the determination, and the motivation we need to make it through those challenges of that day. And in First John chapter three, verse twenty-two, and whosoever and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We then see here another example of being a child of God and doing those things which please Him. If we do that, He's promised to hear our prayers. He's promised the forgiveness of sin when we do and say and think things that are not pleasing in His sight. And He's promised to give us the strength we need every day. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 17, we're given that short description, pray without ceasing. So prayer is something we then learn that has to be a frequent thing in our life if we expect to please God. If we ever have the mindset or get so busy that we think, I don't have time to pray. Friends, we have a serious heart problem if we ever have that mindset. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6, verses 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. All these things are the necessities of life that we need, things like our food, our clothing. And again, in a verse like that, teaching us to be thankful for those. Also, we as Christians, we can... Have the confidence that he hears us in forgiveness of sin. In James chapter 5, 16, Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There may be some fellow brother, sister in Christ that 
is having a challenging time. Maybe they're struggling with the sin. And maybe they've come to us to ask us for prayers. And we would lovingly, very much desire to pray for them and be there for them and show them support. And when we do pray them, we notice that this verse teaches us that healing comes with this for that person. And the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Again, knowing that God hears us and that he will answer if we do his will. In Luke chapter 18, to add to that, verse 1, we are told men ought, ought always to pray and not to faint. So again, if we stop praying or we don't have time to pray, one is liable to faint. And if we faint, we become open to allowing temptations to overcome us, to allow sin to overcome us in our lives. And also, at the bottom of that, towards the bottom of that slide, you may notice that we are to pray and have a mindset with understanding. And this has an implication for us in our private prayer life as well as our public prayer life in our assemblies. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, If you would, let's turn there and read that together. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Jesus speaking here says, And when thou prayest, thou sh shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you that, that they have their reward. But thou, when thou pray, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father, which is, in, which is in secret. And thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathens do. For they think they shall be heard of their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. We, let, we then learn a powerful truth here regarding prayer. One, we're not to use vain repetitions. Two, we're not to pray just so others see us and see how godly we are. The Pharisees and those hypocrites described here, they did that and Jesus condemned it. But we're, we're commanded here to pray in private. And also, going back to those vain repetitions, so when a man is standing up here leading us in prayer, one, it would not be wise for that individual, out of habit, to say the same thing. Now, they may mean it with sincerity but we have to mean what we pray a common phrase that's sometimes heard is guide guard and direct us now that's a fine set of verses and very powerful but we have to be sure men that we mean that as we pray and lead the congregation in that 
also praying in our private lives. We have to pray. If we pray out of habit or just to say we've done it, we ought not expect God to be pleased with that and to hear that prayer. We must remember the one who we're talking to. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15, that very thing Paul here records for us by inspiration. I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. And having an understanding of a proper mindset during public prayers and our worship. Also, for the congregation itself, when a man's up here leading us in prayer, we can't have a wandering mind. We need to be directed in prayers ourselves. And for the men, I'll be ready to say amen at the close of that prayer, and they have to know what they're amening and have to know what that man has just affirmed in his prayer. And it's a very great honor for men to be up and say a public prayer and directing the congregation that way as a form of our worship. As we then come to the next point, this is probably one of the most challenging for most of us, prayer and love for our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 Beginning in verse 44, Jesus gives us a set of very, a set of great teachings here for our lives as Christians. That is, again, that's hard, that can be hard. And he says, starting in verse 44, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. As we then appreciate this teachings from our Master, we know that the Lord in his lifetime had enemies, and we're going to have them too. And for you and I as Christians, we may have more enemies than we like. There may be some in our lives, such as co-workers, the boss, or others, that purposefully may make it hard on us if they know we're Christians. They may set agendas for us to trip us up, to cause us to maybe lie on things or of that regard. Again, because they know we're Christians. But friends, as discouraging as that may be, and as hard as that may be to overcome that, we still have to follow the Lord's teaching. Because we can remember and as we'll see in later lessons of this series of lessons, that even as Jesus was hanging from the cross, nails driven into his hands and feet, he could say in regards to those that were putting him to death, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And friends, if we 
We can't wish bad things on our enemies. We can't call them names. Maybe talking to our families or other co-workers and, talk, and develop, that develops a hatred that we get in our hearts for them. And friends, if we do that, we ought not expect to go to heaven. Now, we don't have to like what they do to us. Jesus didn't, didn't teach us that. But in this set of verses, Jesus was looking on the hearts of those individuals in hopes that they would follow him. And our attitude must be the same in hopes that our enemies would one day come to appreciate the truth and maybe come to obey the gospel before it be late for them. And we can pray for them and their well-being and pray that they may come to that knowledge of truth. Maybe pray for, for us to say the appropriate things for them that will gain of interest in the church and of truth. But wouldn't it be awful to be condemned in hell for eternity just because we developed a hatred for our enemies? And to close this slide and to come to the close of our lesson tonight, we then can appreciate an attitude of thankfulness in our prayers. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, we are told, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, in prayer and supplications, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made, no be made known unto God. Friends, may we always be thankful, first and foremost, for the church, for the Bible, for the inspiration of it, and for all the spiritual blessings that's attached to it. The forgiveness of sin, the grace of God, our faith, and also for our physical blessings as well. It's true that we live in one of the most civilized countries in this world with our material things, our cars, our houses. And may we always remember to the one who those things are made possible by. God provides them for us. And may we never forget that. As we come to our conclusion slide tonight, there's truly many remarkable truths contained in the whole events of the crucifixion. Starting from that, the events of the Lord's Supper, as you and I have looked at tonight, even the examination of our, of our prayer life. And as we come to the close of our lesson tonight, those things ask us, how are we living uh, in regards to those things? If you can't answer that I can't partake of the Lord's Supper appropriately, or maybe you've got a life burdened with sin that you can't pray, pray appropriately due to a life of ongoing habitual sin, it's time to repent of that. It's time to change that way of lifestyle. And if it be the will of God, we will continue our study of the crucifixion in its entirety and continue to learn these great truths that the Bible delivers for us. If you're not a Christian tonight, there's no better night than tonight than to do that. You have to hear Romans chapter 10, 17. You have to believe Mark 16, 15. You have to repent of those things in your life 
Luke 13, 3. You have to confess the wonderful name of Jesus, Romans 10, verse 9. And you have to be scripturally baptized, Acts 2, 38. Romans 6, 3, and 4. Once you do that, he will add you to his church, add you to the body, and all your sins will be forgiven. And if you remain faithful until death, heaven will be your home, Revelation 2.10. If we can help you tonight in these two ways, won't you come while together we stand and sing?